Psalm number 24. We'll read from verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our gracious God, we do come before you, Father, this morning, and we praise you and thank you for the great God you are and the great God you have been to us and the great God you will always be. We thank you for the great salvation that you've given us through your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask and pray through your word that you would minister to our hearts this morning and that you'd continue to have your way in all that we do, say, and think as Christians, as believers. I pray, Father, for those perhaps that are with us that they're not sure about their salvation, that you'd continue to minister to them, comfort of joy, calling them uh, to know you through your Son. We pray, Lord, that you would continue in these uh, times of trouble, these last days, to help our church to be a beacon and a light, a salt, to make a difference for the life that we live, that we would be Christians living up to our name, Christ followers that will live out the word of God. We pray, dear God, that you will continue to use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I think one of the greatest joys anybody can have is to know God and Jesus Christ to be their saviour. To have the assurance of eternal life, to know that when they die, they'll be with the Lord. I believe it's the one, one of the greatest comforts uh, someone can have. I believe one of the discomforts someone can have is struggling to know whether or not they are saved or whether they uh, know the Lord as their saviour. And I believe that one of the greatest tragedies for somebody on this side of heaven and entering into the next life to come is to think that they are saved when they're not. And I believe one of the things that masks this uh, falsehood is religion. I really believe the acts of religion and the traditions and customs of men that they're involved in mask this false assurance. I really believe that uh, people that have religion without a relationship, a true relationship with God will face the greatest reality of their life. Hearing those words, depart from me, for I never knew you, ye that work iniquity. In our passage before us, the psalmist David begins his psalm by reminding us that the Lord is the owner of the whole planet earth. In verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. David uses the word fullness to describe just how much God owns. He owns everything. The fullness word, he means the whole of everything that is filled in the earth. In other words, the entire substance and contents that is in the earth. God not only owns the whole earth, but he owns everything that is in the earth or in the world. Look at the second part of that verse 1. David describes what the fullness means. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. That's what fullness means. Everything in the earth, God owns. The whole of creation, everything that God created, the ocean, the deserts, the forests, the mountains in the earth, all belong to God. Every living thing belongs to God. All the cattle in the world belong to God. Notice what Psalm 50 verse 10, for every beast of the forest, the Lord says is mine and the cattle upon the thousand hills. 
All the birds in the air and all the wild animals belong to God. Verse 11 says, I know all the fowls of the mountains and all the wild beasts of the fields are mine. Not only all creation and all the animals, but all people belong to God. In Psalm 100 verse 3, know ye, know ye that the Lord, He is God, it is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Let me stop here and just say that the whole uh, you know, uh, world or men or society, so to speak, belong to God. Whether they like it or not, you're God's possession. You're God's people. He gave you life. Without God, you wouldn't be here. But not everybody is God's children. Though we're God's people and God wants to shepherd us right from the beginning, we are all like sheep have gone astray. All of us has turned to his own way. But God wants to uh, redeem men. And this is the whole point of this message here today is to uh, know and understand why God created us and for what purpose. In verses 3 to 4, there are two questions that are imposed. Four answers given. And the two questions are found in verse 3. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? Now for the Old Testament saints, the hill of the Lord, or, uh, or his holy place, signified and depicted, listen, the presence of God. It was the presence of the Lord. And so the question uh, could be conveyed in this manner, who is that person that will ascend or go up and stand in the holy place of the Lord or stand before the Lord? Uh, we can put it like this, who will stand right before the Lord? Another way it can be communicated is, is this, who will stand right before God and be blessed to enter into his kingdom? Now before we answer the question in verse 4, Remember, there are four answers given in verse 4, describing that privileged one that will stand before God and stand right before the Lord. I'd like to ask another question. Why is it that he gives this question to his people? Why does he impose this question? And I will simply say in the way of introduction is because not all of Israel, listen, had a heart for God. Although they were the chosen nation in the day that God called them, uh, if you will, not everybody within that chosen nation loved or honoured God. If you remember the days of Moses and Elijah and the prophets and uh, the days of John the Baptist and the presence of our Messiah coming down to earth and all the way through the book of Acts, you know and understand there was always a remnant of, the, of that Jewish nation that loved God and the rest of them, the majority, rejected Him. There was always a remnant. Always. Notice what the Hebrew writer mentions regarding the days of Moses in the Hebrew 3 verse 14. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all, that came out of Egypt by what? Moses. So the majority of them through the wilderness there, if you will, and entering in uh, the, or he heading to the promised land, there were murmurers that murmured against God and Moses. But not all of them. And as a matter of fact, those that murmured uh, had an opportunity to repent and God made a way out through this, uh, that pole and the serpent upon the pole and those that looked upon that serpent on the pole would live. And that would be a picture of Jesus coming and dying upon a cross. He'll be lifted up and those that believe on him will live. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of people that want to believe on the Lord. And we know John chapter 3 gives us the answer to that. They love darkness more than the light. But notice what Paul mentions referring to the days of Elijah in Romans chapter 11, verse 1 to 5. He says, I say then, have God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, the tribe uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not, what the scripture saith of Eli Elias, which is Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying... Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thy altars and I am left alone and they seek my life. 
You know, in the days of Elijah, Elijah thought he was the only one standing, the only one that had the heart for God. And all those people that God chose were killing their own prophets that God sent to them. And he, Elijah, says he thinks he was next. He wanted to die. And, and you know what God says to him? He says, but what was the answer that God gave him? Paul says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. You say, what, Israel? Were idolaters? Yeah, they were. And they, and they played the harlot, verse 5. Even so then, as the, this present time also, there is a, a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, if you back it up to chapter number 9, verse 6, not as though the word of God had none effect. Look at this, look what Paul states here, that, that for they are not all, what's that word? They're not all Israel which are of Israel. In other words, they're not authentic Israelites who believe God and lived up to their calling as God's chosen people. No, not all of them. Uh, though they say that they were Israelites, they weren't surely acting like Israelites, uh, you know, uh, called out and separate to God, loving God, honoring God. But he goes on to say in verse 7, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children it doesn't matter if you're the seed of Abraham he makes that very clear and we're going to get there in a moment John the Baptist makes that very clear to those religious folk as well just because you're from the seed of Abraham doesn't mean you're the children of God but in Isaac shall thy seed be called uh, the promise leading up to Christ and those that believe on him uh, by faith Aren't you glad that God has broken the petition wall and the promises given to Israel are also given to us by faith and we too could be called the children of God. But let me just say this to you today, that the majority of Gentiles too don't love God. They don't love God. There's also a remnant of Gentile believers. Hence the whole message Verse 8, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise accounted of the seed. And by faith we are partakers of those spiritual things, the heavenly things which Abraham saw afar off. There was always a remnant that loved the Lord. What about John the Baptist? What did he say about the matter? In Matthew chapter, seven, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, he said, But when he saw the many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Notice what he says. He says, Bring forth therefore fruits meet for the repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children, under Abraham. Look, listen, if God just wanted robots, he, he could make robots. God wanted a people that will exercise their free will to follow after God, even though God chose them and called them. He wanted them to repent and them get right with God. Verse 10, and now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that bringeth, uh, that which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into where? Wow. Don't think you're just, you know, just because you say that you're, uh, you know, you believe in Abraham, you believe in Moses, you believe in God. Well, good. Saying that doesn't mean anything. Are you living that? A lot of people today are professing people. I mean, I went out and interviewed a man yesterday on the street and I asked him the question, what would you prefer? Would you rather, if you had a choice, to be in heaven or hell? And he said, oh, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be in heaven. I said, why? And he gave me his reason. And I said, if you'd rather be in heaven, uh, then why are you living here on earth like the devil? And think about that. There are a lot of people that have desires. A lot of people that profess to know God, but they live like the devil. They live like unregenerated people. And all they have is a me profession. Look, listen, these people professed to know God, but they were far from him. Notice what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 28. Even so ye, look at this, also outwardly 
appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and what? And I believe this is the reason why the psalmist is imposing these questions. Again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know both the Old Testament Scripture and the New Testament Scripture is inspired by God. So the question at hand is, uh, if we were to sum it up, who will stand right before God and be blessed to enter into His presence and be in His kingdom? And so the answer is found in verse 4. You ready for it? He that have clean hands, a pure heart, who have not lifted up his soul on the vanity nor sworn deceitfully. Now, this description is like what we see in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached. What we call them are characteristics of true believers or those that are the children of the kingdom. We don't have time to go through all the Beatitudes, but they're similar to that. This is not conveying the fact that you have to live a certain way or do good works or be self-righteous to stand in the presence of God. No, this characterizes a person that has faith, true faith and genuine faith in God. Because it is God that directs the steps of, of those that have faith by his word. Abraham's steps were directed. The word of the Lord came to Abraham. He believed and therefore he followed and his life proved it. Doesn't mean that Abraham was sinless doesn't mean David that had a heart for God was sinless, no. And so we look at the first point, is that the four answers given to who will stand right before God or in the presence of God is someone that is sensitive to sin. He that have clean hands. I personally believe that to have clean hands is to be sensitive to your own personal sin in your own life. When we're sensitive to our sin, we then see the need to confess it. David is an example of that in Psalm 51 verse 2. Wash me thoroughly for my iniquity and cleanse me from my what? Sin. Verse 7 says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be what? Clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than what? Snow. He has a man that has acknowledged his sin. Verse 1 uh, uh, proves that, that, that he, want, he was at the mercy of God when he saw his sin confronted by Nathan the prophet. Listen, sensitive people see their sin when they're confronted, by, uh, confronted it with by God. They see it for what it is. They don't make any excuses. They don't blame shift. They don't hide their sin or cover it. They come out and they're open and they were willing to confess. This attitude to our personal sin uh, is not only given as an admonition to the Old Testament saying, but also New Testament. And uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, notice what the Bible says there. For if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So we can say, I, I'm fellow, I, I have fellowship with the Lord, I'm walking with the Lord, but if, uh, if I'm walking in darkness or walking in a way that you know, demonstrates unclean hands, we're lying. It's one thing to say, I have fellowship with God, but you've got to live out what you say. Amen? Okay, so he says that very clear. If we walk in the light, as he's in the light, then we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus uh, Christ, his son, cleanses us from all what sin if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth that it, and the truth is not in us um, this is the greatest deception to think that you're walking in the light and you're walking with god but yet you live in sin you're not sensitive to sin being sensitive to sin doesn't mean you're sinless it means when you when god shows you your sin you confess it look at verse 9 for if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all what? Unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. And so who's that person that will stand before God? And I believe one that has clean hands, that have confessed before God that they are sinners. And you know, this begins at salvation, but it's followed all the way through our, our, our Christian life. The demeanor, the attitude, Having cleansed hands before God is the only way we can be close to God. James says in chapter 4, verse 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, 
and purify your hearts, you what? Double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. So someone that comes with, before the Lord is someone that needs to be humbly admitting and weeping over their sinfulness or sinful activity. It, 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 is, it, it should be. It should be a very great concern for those that can sin in ease and not be convicted before God. I'll, be, I'll put a big question mark upon your life. You say Christians can't be stubborn? Yeah, they can. If you're a truly saved believer, but you know what's going to happen? Your Heavenly Father would discipline you. But even after that, you shrug the shoulder and you have a bad attitude and you don't have no conviction and actually you can live comfortably in your sin. There's something, something terribly wrong. To be sensitive to our sin displays a spirit of meekness. This is why he says be afflicted and mourn. It's something that you do when, you, when God shows you your disposition. That you're, you're not right with God. I mean, listen, even Christians can be deceived. Thinking that they're okay with the Lord, but they're not okay. You know, the, one of the churches exhibited this. They're allowed to see in church. It was a church. And they thought they were okay. And God says, no, you're not okay. And he showed them how they weren't okay. And I, I think uh, the greatest deception, you think that you're, you, you know, you, you're okay with God, but you're not okay. And God shows you that you're not okay. You know, if you have the Holy Spirit, God will never deceive you. He will convict you. He'll, he won't give you this false peace that you're looking for and scrambling. He will convict you. That's the role of the Spirit of God. He's grieved when you're not right with Him. That means He's sorrowful and He's sad. Why? Because He knows that when you're left to your own and you're not being led by His Spirit, you will face greater consequences than the discipline of God. To be sensitive to sin is to display the spirit of meekness. This is what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know, being poor in spirit is to see that you are absolutely and spiritually bankrupt before God. Without God, you're done. And he goes on to say, blessed are they that, are, that mourn, they should be comforted. And when you see that you're absolutely bankrupt, poor in spirit, destitute, uh, far from the things of God, and in need of God, you humble yourself before God. You say, Lord, cleanse me, save me, forgive me. And the Bible says he'll comfort you. I think one of the greatest things is the grace of God given to you the time that you humble yourself. You know who God resists? The proud. You know who he gives grace to? And that grace comforts your heart. To be forgiven is to be uh, simply right with God. But to cover your sin, you'll never prosper. You'll never prosper. Who will stand before God in his presence? Uh, who would stand right? It's one that is sensitive to sin. Second of all, it's a sincere person. One that is sincere. And Psalm 24 verse 4, He that have clean hands and a what? Pure heart. Pure means sincere, means genuine, transparent. This characteristic reflects of what kind of faith that we have toward the Lord. You know what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5, he says, when I call to remembrance, look at this, the unfeigned faith. Why does he say that? Why unfeigned? Why does he put a description of faith? Unfeigned means sincere. Genuine, listen, without hypocrisy. Because there are people out there that call upon the name of the Lord with a faith that is not genuine. It's not genuine. And so Paul is simply saying and, 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 and affirming to Timothy that what he sees in him is something to be real. Genuine faith. He says, uh, when I call to remembrance of the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which First, uh, which dwelt first in thy grandmother, Lois, and thy mother, Eunice. Look at this. I am persuaded that it is in thee also. That's one thing to judge someone and to say, I don't believe he's saved. Well, you don't know where they stand with God, whether they're backslidden or whatever. 
But it's certainly another thing to say, well, I'm convinced that that person really truly believes the Lord. Why? Because they're living like they are. Because your walk talks more than your talk talks. The way you live is a reflection or should be a reflection of what you believe. 2 Timothy 2.2, he says to Timothy, flee also useful lust, but follow after righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them who are them, believers that call on the Lord out of a what? Out of a pure heart. Remember the first soil in the parable Jesus gives, it's called the good ground. And it's called the good ground for a reason. Because they received the word of God in a sincere or a good, honest heart. In Luke chapter 8, verse 15, but that on the good ground are they, which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word and keep it. So what do you mean good heart? Jeremiah says our heart is desperately wicked. What do you mean good? Well, here it means sincere in this context. Genuine. Uh, it means someone that is pure in heart. Uh, Pure in heart, in the way they respond to the word of God, with their whole heart. Remember when Philip was preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch and he says, if you believe with all your heart, it's not to be half-hearted or doubting. It's someone, listen to me, it's someone that believes wholeheartedly in the Lord and what he's done. Fully, fully. My faith is fully relying on God. And so an honest and good heart is a heart that is pure, genuine, receptive, to the word of God, no hidden agendas, no bad motives, no bad motives. It is a heart that wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly believes in the word of God. And so there are many who profess Christ, but do not possess Christ. Jesus said it very clearly, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he says in Luke 16, 15, he says to the Pharisees, at least to the religious people, uh, ye are they which justify yourselves before who? before men but God knoweth your hearts for that which is highly esteem among men is an abomination in the sight of God and that's always been the case there's always been an opposition between the world and God his ways and the world ways is there's always button heads on what God esteems to be of value and what the world esteems. Even Peter has it there, uh, admonishing Christian ladies in 1 Peter chapter number 3. What is a great price in the sight of God? It's not the clothes or the costly, or, you, know, you know, plaited hair or, you know, all these gold or whatever. No, it's a, it's a meek and quiet spirit before the Lord. And so what these Pharisees deemed to be somewhat, you know, outwardly, elevating to man wow look at this person he possesses something to be you know god says no it's an abomination unto me god sees things differently and god for the most part looks at the heart first and foremost is it pure is it genuine and thirdly if you have a look at psalm 24 verse 4 who will stand right before God? Not only someone uh, that is sensitive to their sin, sincere before God, but someone that is sanctified, he that hath a clean hands, a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity. Sanctified. Jesus said when he prayed to God the Father regarding his disciples, sanctify them by thy truth thy word is truth sanctified means to be set apart from that which is profane to that which is holy from that which is heavenly to that which is earthly for that which is eternal for that which is temporal and to lift up your soul unto vanity is to live out of the will of god and living in this world to that which is vain and mundane vanity to live a life that is wasted and worthless to live a worldly life opposed to a godly life. The Lord is looking for a people who will love him and serve him. That's he's looking for a people. First John chapter 2 and verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's very clear. If you're someone that has an appetite fully for the world, and you love the world and the system of the world and the philosophy of the world and everything that the world portrays, the love of the Father is not in you. 
And he then defines what that is. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the what? It's not of God. And when a Christian or when a believer in an Old Testament state lives in the world, they're doing all that they can by faith to follow the instruction of God to be a separate people, to love God and honour God in their generation. As hard as it is, but there's a heart there for God like David had a heart for God and did all that which God told him to do. He goes on to say, John that is, that the world passeth away and the lust thereof, that's vanity, it's going to pass away. Everything in the world and all the lust that there is found in the world that appears to the flesh that man gravitate to one day will be fading away like a leaf. But he goes on to say, but he that doeth the will of God abides for how, how, how long? Forever. And that's the same thing that he said to those Pharisees, those religious people, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who doeth the will of the Father which is in heaven. And listen, brethren, the will of the Father is not just believing on Christ and then nothing. It's believing on Christ for a purpose. That Christ is able to save you and change you and, and, uh, and, and not only get your feet out of that uh, ditch or that morally clay, but set your foot upon a rock and establish your goings and put a new song in your mouth, even the praise of God. Yeah. That's what Peter said, right? He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light that we may show forth his praises. We are holy people, a peculiar people, a holy nation that being caught out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Lord is looking for people of faith who reject this evil world by believing on Christ. 1 John 5 verse 4, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world. Even our, what? Faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? He's the substance of our faith. You can't just say, well, you just got to have faith. You just got to believe in what? Believing in Christ is a necessity to be regenerated and give a new heart, be born again and have uh, those old things pass away and behold, all things become new. The Lord admonishes both Old Testament saints and New Testament saints to uh, simply reject, if you will, the philosophy and the idols of the world. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16. And what agreement have the temple of God with idols? Old Testament saint, they had a temple, God had a temple for his people. And in that temple was the Holy of Holies, which we would say the presence of God. Uh, dwelt there, if you will. So what, what, I mean, you have the temple of God and idols. What agreement? Are they compatible? No. But then he goes on to say, New Testament saints, you are the temple of God. Thank you for that wonderful privilege that we have as God's people. Old Testament, they had, God had a temple for his people. New Testament, God has a people for his temple. And the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And we have no agreement with idols. Things that want to take us away from the possession which God simply has on us. We have been bought with a price. We belong to God, not only as his people, but as his children. So he's admonishing them. He says, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and thou shall be my people. He says, wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And look at this, I will receive you, and I'll be a father unto you. You should be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. It's the same admonition given to the Old Testament and New Testament saints. There's nothing different. Many people in the world worship the Lord in vain. Worship the Lord in vain. Mark chapter 7 verse 5. Then the Pharisees and the scribe asked him, Why not thy disciples, uh, uh, according to the... Uh, walk not, sorry. Why, he says this. Why walk not thy disciples, according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? And he answered and said unto them, Well, has, uh, 
uh, Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites as it is written these people honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me how bit in what how bit in vain in vain do they worship me teaching for the doctrine of the commandments of men by the way you stop here and you see that this is alluding to Jesus is God They worshipping him in vain. How? They don't do what he says. Why call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I tell you? You'd rather f follow the tradition and custom of men than follow the word and the living word of God. He, he, vain worshippers. It's because someone says, I worship God, I follow God, I believe in God. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. There's a whole, whole heap of people that do that. God is looking for people that are sanctified people that have believed on God and believed on His Son in our generation and, uh, and, and be separate from the unclean thing and, and come to gravitate upon that which is holy. The Bible says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And that's what David says in Psalm 4 verse 1, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness, thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. Look at this in verse 2. O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after what? Leasing, which means dishonest, dishonesty or uh, falsehood or living a lie. Adam Clark describes vanity in this context, meaning the poor, empty, shallow braid pretty faced uh, Absalom whose uh, prospects are all vain and whose promises are all empty this is why even he says to Christians don't provoke one another to what vain glory you know what Absalom wanted wanted the glory that God gave to David for being king God lifted him up. He put him as king. And, and, and Absalom wanted that glory, if you will. You know, David was never seeking glory like Saul was or Absalom was. That's the difference between two. David was wanting and seeking the glory of God. And all those that seek self-glory is all vain. It's mundane. Who will stand right before God? Not only... Uh, person that is sensitive if you will sincere and sanctified but lastly a serious person their word means something uh, their integrity is here you can count on their word look at this he that had clean hands a pure heart who have not lifted up his soul in the vanity look at this nor sworn what deceitfully the first characteristic talks about a confession, having cleansed hands by the confession. The second characteristic talks about my conduct, the disposition of my heart, my motive. The third talks, uh, sorry, that was the, the second cause, talks about the condition of my heart. The third talks about my conduct. What is it? I don't want to live in vanity. The fourth talks about my communication. The things that I say, the vows that I make, saying true to your vows are very important. I think one of the two greatest vows that you can ever make before God is the first one is professing Christ to be your Savior with all your heart. And so I want to follow you after that. I, I, want, to, I want you to be my Lord. You know, Peter made a vow, remember, I will never deny you. And, he, and, and what happened when he did? He broke. What happened when he did? He cleansed his hands. He broke. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a light matter in, in his life. And that's how you know he's the real deal, man. He wept, the Bible says, bitterly. He wept bitterly. And so the second is staying true to your vows when you get married. You know why the divorce rate is up the roof today, over 50%? Because their word means nothing. It's like plastic in the sun. It's brittle. Easily broken. 
The Bible says a faithful man who can find. For all, for, there are many people that proclaim their own goodness, the, the, uh, the wise man said in the book of Proverbs, but a faithful man who can find. Who's going to stay true to their word? You know what this reminds me of? Matthew chapter 12 and verse 33. Have a look. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. You know, God values people of integrity, people who keep their word. And the truth of the matter is, our words, the Bible says, what we're going to read in a moment is a reflection of our hearts. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Neither make the tree good and the fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by its what? Fruit. He says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaketh. For a good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things, and evil men out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. And by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be what? Condemned. That's why in Ecclesiastes it says, hey, before making a vow, don't, don't just make a vow. It's better off that you don't vow than you make a vow and you don't keep the vow. You're better off not making that vow. Because what you say you will do, if you don't do it, you'll be judged in that day. That's, that's a big thing. Reminds me of this parable. The two sons, Matthew chapter 21, have a look. Matthew chapter 21. I, I believe it's significant to what we're uh, sharing here today. And look at verse 8. Sorry. Uh, Matthew chapter 21. <clears throat> 28 yep thank you verse 28 notice what the Bible says here by what think ye a certain man had two sons and he came to the first and said son go work today in my vineyard and he answered and he said I will not but afterward he what? He repented and what? Went. And they came to the second and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. And he says to these Pharisees, Whither of them twain did the will of his father? They say unto him, The first. Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not after that, that ye might believe him. And we know that John the Baptist paved the way for Christ. You're a true disciple of John, you will be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, which is the whole point of John the Baptist's ministry, is to point people to Jesus. So what was the, you know, what was Jesus trying to do here? He's trying to expose them, that they were all talk but no action. All talk. Outwardly, they looked like they had the part and played the part, but they were not the part. They were fake and phonies. They were only professors. But outwardly, you'd think that, you, mate, these guys are the real deal. To any, any naked eye of a man would think, mate, these people, how religious they are. Wow. And you look at the publicans and the sinners in the hearts, you think, wow, they're far from God. But you know what? They could see their need. They'll probably go later on and contemplate and they're convicted about what they've heard and they'll come back and realize like that prodigal son that they are wretched and need of a saviour. They are lost 
and they need to be found. They are blind, but they can see, uh, you know, they need to be uh, having sight. And they see their conduct, that they're not where they're supposed to be. And you know what religion does without a relationship with God? It covers your sin and makes you think that you're okay when you're not. You believe in God? You want to serve God? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And all along, people play church. So how do you know that? Well, I don't know individually what, you know, what people are going through in their lives, but I see it from the scripture that there are people that live holy on a Sabbath day or a Sunday and then live like the world every other day. These four characteristics, sensitive, sincere, sanctified, serious people, is what God is looking for. As a matter of fact, there are blessed people. It's like the Beatitudes. You look at those Beatitudes, maybe read them before you sleep tonight. Blessed is, blessed, 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 blessed. And the result of that character, what they will get, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, blessed uh, is the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, all these tremendous things. And over here in verse 5, he that receiveth the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. There's blessings to live by faith, having God to mold you by his word as you follow one step at a time. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. It is these kinds of people that God is looking for. And like God appreciates them. Any true believer that loves God appreciates people that love God. I marvel sometimes to see where people are, were and where people are. Like Paul, I'm persuaded of the unfeigned faith and there's a special kind of love for those that love the Lord. There's no doubt about that. Read, read your Bible and see. And you think, I thank God for that person. I marvel when I see people from where they have been and where God is bringing them to. I marvel. In verse 6, this is the generation of them that seek him. That, they, that seek thy face, O Jacob. God is looking for this generation in our day. There's too many phonies today, too many professing people today that undermine the character of God and Christianity that turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and I'm sick of it I am it's messages like that you get actually accused for preaching lordship salvation now we know that the Lord saves us by faith by his grace through faith and not of ourselves but if you keep reading your Bible you don't understand any saved man wants to follow the Lord Keep reading your Bible. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And that which God actually ordained before the world began. This is the whole purpose of salvation. The purpose of salvation is not for you to bear no fruit. It's for you to bear fruit in Christ. To walk as Christians. Too many professing believers that dumb down the word of God under this greasy grace system. The question has to be asked in closing, why did the psalmist have to testify and remind the people in the beginning of the psalm, before he uh, asks the questions, gives the answer, that everything belongs to God? Why did he do that? I personally believe, if we look at Psalm 50, turn there, I personally believe that God is not looking for people to boast about their sacrifice, but rather God is looking for people that will worship the God in whom they bring the sacrifice to. God is looking for worshippers. That's why he said to the woman at the well, God is looking for true worshippers. And that worship God in spirit and in what? Truth. There it is. Not this phony, you know, religious, put on self-glory, self-righteous attitude. 
Look at verse 7 in Psalm 50. He, O my people, again, he's appealing to these people that uh, were supposed to walk according to his ways. He says, I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. He says, I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or burnt offerings to have them continually before me. Why? Because God initiated the sacrificial system. What was the sacrificial system all about? For their redemption, for their temporal covering or pardon until the Messiah would come, who is the for, who, who all these uh, sacrificial systems were a foreshadowing of the will thing. They would appoint a Christ. They would be temporarily by faith to bring us to the grace of God and ask for his mercy and forgiveness. I'm not going to reprove you for these. To have them continually before me. Verse 9, I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor goats out of thy folds. Look at this. For every beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, all the wild beasts of the fields, they're mine. Hey, listen, if I were hungry, I'm not going to go to you. Why? Look at, for the world is mine. Same thing, Psalm 24. God says it, not, not David. God, for world, the world is mine and the fullness thereof. You think that you're all that because you're bringing the first fruits of the cattle and bringing them before me and look, we're offering the first fruits. Look what, my, look what I have and the possessions I have, God. See how wonderful I am. See how great I am. <laughs> Who gave you the sacrifice to begin with? Who gave you all the things that you have? And now you bring them to God and you boast about them like that parable that Jesus speaks about, the Pharisee and the publican? It's not that God doesn't want the sacrifice. Because a sacrifice ought to be there to show our love toward God. Not to boast about it. God wants us to bring the sacrifice to praise Him with it. Because it's His anyway. And if He were hungry, you think He'll go to you? Everything belongs to God. He, didn't, he doesn't need anything from us. Hey, Israelites, He doesn't need anything from you. You know, you bringing the sacrifice is not doing God a favor. Listen, you bringing the sacrifice is God doing you a favor. Because that sacrifice will point to his only begotten son. And then he goes on to say, Will I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Well, do you think all these sacrifices are for me? They're atoned for your sin. The sacrifice is for the, sh the shedding of blood. For without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. You should come broken offering those sacrifices. But to them, the sacrifice was a means to an end. You know, it's like what Christians do today. Professing Christians. See, I went to church today. See, I read my Bible. See, I gave money. Some don't even do that. And by the way, if you preach on that, they get all shaky. Uh, see, I did this and I did this. See? They're all privileges. They're not rights. For me to give back to God, to serve God, to worship God is a privilege. They only cramp my style when I do it out of a heart that is religious and not a heart that is full of gratitude to him. Look at the next verse. Offer unto God, what's that word? Thanksgiving. And pay thy vows unto the Most High. Thank you, Lord, and be true to your word. I'll serve you. I love you. All the way to the end, I'm willing to die. One crisis, gone with the wind. One offense, see you later. Everything that they've learned, in the bin. Rubbish, gone. Or the cup is full of wonderful blessings and now they've been spilt to the ground because they've been hurt. Something happened. Or the expectation is not met. Whatever it is. Look what he says. Look how he closes off the Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. 
Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong, mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and even lift, up the, lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And you know what? He wants to be glorified, praised and loved and adored. When the disciples uh, saw the glory of the Lord, you know what they said? They said this, What manner of men is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? What do you mean? They saw the glory of the Lord. They actually saw his creation obey him. And they marveled that even creation obeys him. Well, that's why God created us. In Revelation 4, verse 11, For thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were what? Everything that God created was for him and for his glory and for his pleasure. You know when a bird chirps and sings? That's for the glory of God. Think how beautiful that bird is. But that's for the glory of God. You know when you see that ocean uh, wave crash where it needs to... Uh, crash that's for the glory of God God says it stop here it stops that's where I want you to crash that's where I want you to uh, end and cease and it, it what it obeys him that fish with the little coin how did the coin get in the fish and how the fish come to one of the disciples like it obeyed God hey how did that whale come and swallow up Jonah it obeyed God how did that donkey talk it obeyed God all creation obeys God but for man and God is teaching us through the new man the second Adam this is how we need to live not like the first Adam disobedient unthankful but the second Adam yeah I'm a Christian I love Jesus but they're still licking, living like the first Adam Disobedient, rebels. It's not what God is looking for. God is looking for a people that will worship Him in spirit and in truth, that will glorify Him. We can learn from what Solomon said. What is the whole conclusion of the matter? Fear God and what? That's the whole conclusion. That's the end of humanity. You know what God wants you to do? Wants me to do? Fear Him, honor Him, love Him, respect Him, keep His word. And you can't do that if you're not saved. Salvation's first. But when you get saved, something called the Holy Spirit is given to you, the light of God's word, which directs you step by step. You know, if you don't come to Christ, you don't get saved, you don't walk in the newness of life, you're not living out the righteousness of God, being sober, rejecting this world like the grace of God's supposed to teach us. The Bible says, for God shall bring every work in the judgment and every secret thing, whether it be good or bad, Sorry, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That day of judgment is going to declare everything. He's going to declare, listen to me very clearly, the good fish from the bad fish, the tares from the wheat, the foolish virgins from the wise virgins. Listen, the good soil from the bad soil. He's going to declare it right at the end, the true from the phony. What's the whole point of this message? Well, this get saved if you're not saved. If you're struggling whether you are saved or not, might be diligent to seek the word of the Lord while there's time. If you think you're saved when you're not, don't continue to live in that deception. Get out of it. How do you, how do you get out of it? It's messages like this that should make me fear and tremble and go back and examine myself whether I be in the faith. You know what people don't like my preaching? Oh, you always cause me to doubt my salvation. Listen, if you have salvation, you have no problem. We don't believe you can lose it. 
You have no problem. It's a sober thing to come before the Lord and say, Lord, man, I don't know what just happened, but I just got rattled. God, search me, O oh God. See if there be any wicked way in me and, and, and lead me in the way of everlasting. Oh, yeah, examine me, Lord. Why did I get rattled? Don't I know you? Is my relationship right with you? Like, what's going on? Is, there's a reason why you're rattled. I've never been rattled. You can tell me even straight to my face, Charlie, you're not saved. I'll laugh at you because I know who I've believed and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. You can't cause me to doubt uh, my salvation. I know the Lord. I'm walking with him intimately. Are you? The people that get angry at me are people that perhaps have shonky walks with God. That's probably why. I mean, even the preacher at Taree, when I preached the gospel message, came up to me and says, oh man, I, I feel like getting saved again. I said, praise God, brother. When I hear a gospel message, I feel that I like that too. It's like my wife. I feel like marrying her again if I could. But you get saved once. You can't keep getting saved, but hey, you can go back and say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for loving me. I never want to forget my first love or leave off my first love. Messages like this are more needed today than ever because there's an fluctuation of so many people that profess to know God but deny Him by their works. And it's not just false teachers. It's the false teachers that are breeding this society of professing Christendom today. Oh, that's just for false teachers. What do you think the false teachers are trying to do? They're trying to deceive you to be like them. To say that you know Jesus, but live like the devil. I better end it here. God has called us, not only to save us, but to change us and to be sincere people that are sensitive to sin, that are sanctified by the word of truth, to bring glory to him, to be, to be a people that are serious and sober about the things of God. Amen? Let's pray.